This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning. Uh, If I haven't had an opportunity to meet you, maybe you're new here. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's just great to have you have you with us this morning. Uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to study a passage of the Bible. If you're new, what we typically do is just work our way through a section of Scripture. Uh, we read it, and then I'll explain some of it, and then try to help us learn how we could apply this to our lives. So we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, in the seat in front of you, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you. You can take that out. And really, I would encourage you to do so, because this will all make a lot more sense if you're reading along with us. So please do that. And you can open up to page 558. On page 558, you'll find 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, that's what we're going to read and uh, talk about this morning. And uh, the series has been called Together because a lot of what we're looking at is how do Christians relate together in a church? How, what is God doing to build a people together uh, in the church? And this passage, week after week, we're seeing that. And this passage today will be no different. So I'm going to begin the reading in verse 23, uh, chapter 10, verse 23, and we'll read through verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, page 558 uh, in the chair Bibles there. Let's hear God's word to us today. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word, which uh, is always relevant to our lives. Even a passage Uh, separated by 2,000 years and strange customs and cultures to us. Even a passage like that has relevance for us today. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying to us through this passage. Uh, We pray that you would convict us where that's needed. We pray that you would encourage us, for we all need that. And we pray most of all that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ Uh, in his glory as we look at this passage today. So Lord, have your way. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this today concludes uh, really three chapters talking about the thorny issue of uh, eating meat offered to idols. And so we're going to, I'll explain that a little bit where we've been, but I wanted to read a metaphor to you to begin with. It's an illustration, but it's really a metaphor that I found helpful about what this passage is going to do, because this passage is going to, uh, it's going to do a couple of different things to help us understand how we're to live. And uh, I've never shared a illustration about birds in my life, but there's always a first. Some of you are birders like birds. So this is your moment to shine. Uh, A bird metaphor. Here you go. Not original to me. This is a commentator. Some birds seem to spend all day in tiny, small scale activities. They busy themselves with making nests, grubbing for food and squawking to each other within a small space. They seem to be severely practical Everything they do has an immediate object, another little detail in the mosaic of their daily lives. Other birds spend 
uh, seem to spend all day in great, soaring, wide-ranging flight. You can watch them sometimes riding thermal currents by a cliff or a hill. No doubt they sometimes stop for food, nesting and rearing their young. But for much of the time, they seem to be simply taking delight in their ability to float in leisurely fashion over miles of countryside, seeing more of the world with a single glance of those sharp eyes than the average house sparrow sees in a month. Some people are more like sparrows, others are more like eagles, and some teachers are like one and some like the other. Some teachers are always giving more and more practical details, a wealth of little bits and pieces you're meant to fit together in the mosaic of truth that you're trying to learn. Other teachers give soaring, great platitudes, big, general truths that sound fine and inspiring. The trouble is, of course, that the house sparrow type of teacher never gets around to giving you the big picture. And if you come upon a problem you've not been told about, how will you know what to do? The eagle type of teacher, too, may never get around to showing you how the great truths work out in practice when you leave the classroom and walk out into the street. It is a mark of Paul's genius that he knows how to be both kinds of teachers, and both types of teaching are right here in this conclusion to the section that began in chapter 8. It's really a helpful picture because in this passage, Paul gives us an eagle-like big picture for how to live your life, and then he gives us a sparrow-like, very detailed application of what do you do in this particular situation, in this particular moment. And we need both, and some of you are sparrows and eagles, I know, by the way you talk to me after a sermon. Some of you want, I just need more details. Okay, that's, don't give me, a, I don't really need a lot of theology or big picture, just tell me, what do I do? And then others, you're like, man, I need the grand story, and I need the big picture, and you know, I can fill in the details, but just give me more of the the, the breathtaking view of the grandeur of God and his purposes. And when you get those two together, that's very challenging. But uh, so Paul does both in this passage. And if I could add to the metaphor, I would say this, we need eagle soaring big picture to inform the detailed picture. We've got to have both, but the big eagle soaring is what comes first. And so in this passage, I normally go verse by verse, but I'm going to jump all the way down to verse 31. And I'm going to start there because that's eagle. So we're going to go eagle. We're going to take flight. And then we're going to come down and go sparrow and and grub around for worms and build a nest or whatever else. Talk about our practical life because that's what Paul does in this passage. So verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink, and we've had three chapters on, is it okay to eat meat that's been offered in an idol temple? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, get ready to soar, do all to the glory of God. All to the glory. How many of you, well, don't raise your hand, but some of you I know have a life verse. People say, this is my life verse. This is the, the verse of my life. God spoke it to me at summer camp when I was 14 years old, or this is inscribed in my wedding band. This is our life verse. Well, let me just bump whatever life verse you have out of the way to number two. This is your new life verse. <laughs> kind of heavy handed, uh, but this is your new life verse. Your new life verse is Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, because that is the big picture of the Bible. That's the reason for the whole universe. That's the reason you're sucking God's air into your lungs right now, and that's the reason your heart is breathing. It is because you were created to give glory to your creator and savior, Jesus Christ, in all that you do. That is the reason for being. That is the reason for creation. Everyone's life verse is do all to the glory of God because that is the meaning of the universe. Now, here's the challenge. What does that mean? I think we can all say, yes, live for the glory of God. I'm all for that. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't really know. But yes, I'm all for the glory of God. It's a concept that's a little hard to get our minds around, right? What, what is glory? What is God's glory? If I'm to do everything to the glory of God, what is the glory of God? Um, what does that even mean? It's a lofty, eagle kind of an idea but what does it mean? Well, let's start with the word glory. In the Bible, sometimes the word glory uh, speaks of the light that emanates off of God. It is the brightness, um, the blinding brightness 
of God's presence. Sometimes that is referred to as the glory of God. But most commonly, when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about his essence, his essential nature. The glory of God is who he really is. The glory of God is his excellence. It's his greatness. It's his perfection. We sang a new song today. No one can add to your perfection. I will trust in you. It is his perfection. It is his beauty. That's why Psalm 19, one says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. That means when you look into the sky and you consider the grandeur of the universe, you say, that tells me about the grandeur of God. When you see the beauty of a Texas sunset and the colors in the sky, say, that tells me, that, that reflects, that points to the beauty of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, his excellence, his worth, whatever displays his, his character. So how can we do all to the glory of God? Well, it's, it's this. It means that by grace, by God's grace, empowered by, by his spirit, that by his grace, we seek to live our life to reflect who he is so that our lives, like a mirror, reflect back what the character, what the essence, what the person of God is all about. So we're soaring right now, right? We're not on the ground. This is big picture. It is reflecting the character of God. It is living in such a way that when God looks down at me, he sees himself in reflection. That when God looks down at me, first of all, he sees Christ, so he always sees himself in reflection. But as he sees me being conformed to the image of Christ, more and more he can look down into our lives and he can see his essence reflected and that glorifies him because that reflects who he is, that mirrors who he is. That, like the heavens, declares what God is like. So living to the glory of God is living a life that looks like who he is so that if, some, if he looks down our lives, he sees his character reflected. If someone else looks on our life, they could see something of the work of God in us. That's living to the glory of God. It is pointing to him. It is living in a way that, that, that makes him famous in the world, makes him known in the world. It is living in a way that honors him. It is living in a way that reflects his glory. So that is the why of the Bible. That is the why of life. Everything is for the glory of God. And once you meet Christ, then you begin to be able to live for the glory of God. And that becomes your life purpose. Maybe I was a little strong in the life verse. I'm going to give it back to you. You pick your life verse, but this is at least number two, that this becomes then our reason for living. The why of your life precedes the what of your life. The why of your, what is your purpose? That precedes what you do. So we've had three chapters on can I go to a temple and eat meat? Can I eat this meat? Is this meat contaminated? We've had three chapters and Paul ends it with saying, whatever you do, do live your life and make your decisions so that your life and your actions reflect the essence, the excellence, the beauty, the grandeur, the glory of God. That's, what you, that's how you make your decisions. That's the, that's the big picture of life. Um, and that's all possible because of what Christ has done for us. It's only because he has forgiven our sins and he has given us new life and we're in union with him. It's only through a relationship with Christ that we can even begin to consider doing all things to the glory of God. So what does that eagle view have to do with sparrow living? It's not just lofty theology. Uh, the call to live for the glory of God is applied in a very practical way. Paul is going to show, because of the glory of God, how you should act at a dinner party. That's very granular. That's very, you're not going to a dinner party thinking lofty, philosophical, reason for being kind of ideas. They hand you the leg of lamb at the dinner table at the unbelieving pagan's home. Do you eat it or not? Paul did all the big theology in what we just read, and he's going to inform how to make that decision. And his point is going to be that you act in a way to seek your neighbor's good. The way you navigate that decision is you seek your neighbor's good, but it's not just your neighbor's good. It's what we just read. You seek your neighbor's good for the glory of God. And that's the exhortation. That's the command. That's the charge of this passage. All because of what Christ does for us, 
we in turn or to seek our neighbor's good to the glory of God. That's, that's the theme of this verse. And you could say that's the theme of the Christian life. By grace, seek my neighbor's good for the glory of God. Jesus said it this way. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. Those are the two great commandments. Here it is seek your neighbor's good for the glory of God. So let's talk first of all about seeking our neighbor's good. He starts this passage in verse 23 with a couple of slogans. Look at it in your Bible. All things are lawful. Do you notice those are in quotation marks? Rob preached this, these same kind of slogans were used, I think, back in chapter 6. I, I remember Rob preached on those to us, but they're surfacing again. All things are lawful, parent, uh, quotation marks, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, quotation marks. Why are they in quotation marks? Because these are sayings of some of the Corinthians. The Corinthians are saying, we are free to do whatever we want. So there's been an f- argument in the church about, now that I'm a Christian and I don't any longer worship all kinds of gods, I worship one God. So now I'm a Christian, can I go back with my family and all my friends to the temple and have a meal? Like eat idol meat in that temple. And we read last week, absolutely you may not. You may not go back and eat meat offered to idols because that's you're actually fellowshipping with demons just like you fellowship with Christ in the Lord's Supper. So you may not go to an idol temple and worship through eating meat. Once you become a Christian, that's a distinction. Okay, but can we eat the meat at all? Because most of the meat at the market that was sold was all offered at the temple. So they slaughter an animal, animal, offer it to a foreign god, then they get before a statue, they chant, they eat the food in fellowship, then usually there's some, or often there's some kind of sexual immorality involved after that. So you can't do any of that. But the leftover meat from that meal is then taken and sold at the meat market. So if you buy that meat and bring it to your house, you're eating meat that had originally been there. So can you do that? Well, Paul's going to answer this here. And some people are saying, well, it's, I'm free. All things are lawful. I'm at liberty. I can do, I can eat any meat, of course. And Paul agrees. You can eat meat. That's what he said before. You can do it. Absolutely. But it's the wrong question. The question's not, can I eat the meat? All things are lawful. I'm free to do it. But not all things are helpful. Paul says the the question you should be asking is what's helpful, not what do I get to do, not what is the line, how far can I walk up to the line, but what would be helpful to someone else? All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Paul says, don't just be asking, am I free to do this? But by doing this, would I build and encourage someone else up? It gives us a totally different question, an approach to ethics in life. What am I supposed to do? So, so, so we have to consider. So if you, were, if you think it's okay to eat the meat, which Paul says it is, but there are other people in the church that don't think it's okay to eat the meat. Some of them feel like if I eat that meat, I'm not going to the temple, but if I eat that meat, that somehow I'll be sinning that I might lead back into the idolatrous life and I'll be sinning against God. So some people think they can't do it. So Paul says, if you're free, don't, don't draw that person into eating. Don't draw the Christian. He calls it a weak conscience. Don't take the Christian with a weak conscience and encourage them to eat or invite them to eat because they'll be thinking they're sinning. And, uh, and, and so you don't want to lead someone into sin, even though it's not a sin, they think it's a sin and you don't want to lead them. So that, that's what all's going here. So can you eat the meat? Yes. But does that help that weaker Christian? Well, probably not. Can you eat the meat? Yes. But does that build up the weaker Christian? So he's saying your ethics have to be seeking your neighbor's good. Verse 24, the next verse, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, their they're asking and answering the wrong question. It's not, can I do it? But it's, the question is, what's helpful? What builds up? What serves other people? And uh, for, for their good, and then ultimately for the glory of God, as we looked at earlier. Just because I'm free to do it doesn't mean I should do it or should do it at all times. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. This is the ethic of love. And when we get to the end of chapter 14, we could take this little verse, verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. We could say, wow, chapters eight through 14, that was the theme. That meat and idol and why Paul didn't accept a paycheck, though he could have taken one. That was all what's good for my neighbor. We're about to get into three chapters on, uh, we're about to get into a chapter on the Lord's Supper and sharing with others for the good of our neighbor. We're about to cover three chapters on spiritual gifts. And Paul's going to say the big thing about spiritual gifts, what builds up your neighbor? 
not what builds up you. So seeking the good of, uh, of another for the glory of God, that is really a six chapter theme that we're getting right here. That's the Christian, that's our ethics. That's how we're to respond. Um, so after doing that, he then goes really granular. So we're no longer soaring. We are now little sparrows and just, just messing with straw, making a nest. We are in the details. He's taking us into the weeds, granular case study. Here's the case study. Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, serve whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So he says, it's fine to buy the meat. Very clear. It's fine to buy the meat. And if someone invites you over, they're an unbeliever and they, they want to, uh, they offer you meat. He says, don't ask any questions, just eat the meat. I, I think of this as uh, recently I was at a ball game last week, went to a baseball, uh, major league baseball game. And at the game, I had a hot dog. So just think of this hot dog question. Do not ask about the meat. <laughs> you do not eat a hot dog and then go online and research, research the source of that product. You just eat and have a great time and enjoy the game and pray that it all goes well later when you <laughs> get home or the next day. So this is similar, not, not literally, but this is kind of similar. Don't ask about the meat. Uh, he, he said, it's wrong to eat in the idol temple, but you don't do that. You don't, d- don't, don't, don't do that. Just eat. He says, in essence, one, one commentator said, there's a difference in the venue and the menu. You can't eat in the venue. You can't eat at the idol temple, but it's not the meat that is contaminated. There's not little demons flying around in the meat. It's the worship. It's the presence. It's the bowing before an idol. It's communing with that, the, the, the presence, the demonic presences that are there, he says. So the, the venue's off grounds, but the menu's not off grounds. You can eat what they eat there. So eat it, go to someone's house, eat it. And why can we eat the meat at someone's house? Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is glorious. This is Psalm 24, one. And it says, God created the earth. God owns everything. It's all from him. And so you can eat what he provides. And he's going to say, look down in verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, So you can eat and give thanks. God, you created everything. I receive this with thanks. This verse, Psalm 24, one was part of the typical Jewish meal. They, they said grace or prayed a blessing or whatever language you want to use to describe that prayer before the meal time. They did that. And part of the Jewish tradition is when you prayed for your meal, you prayed. I love this because I've never heard any theology or any teaching on praying before a meal. It's just a rote thing that I learned growing up and still do. But here's teaching on it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If I partake with thankfulness, the Jews would pray that verse and say, Lord, everything is for you. I, from you, I thank God for it. So he says, go. So just maybe you don't pray in front of an unbeliever, but in your heart, just thank God for the meat. Don't ask any questions. Freely enjoy it for the glory of God. That's what he is uh, calling us to do. Um, let, Let me read between the lines a little bit here. Don't be an awkward Christian in context with unbelievers on matters that don't matter. Uh, that hurts the whole team when we're out being like weird, okay? And, and introducing rules. So, some of us, obviously, I mean, honestly, some of us have more rules than God. And we're, it's, it, there we're just, it, we can just get in this thing. Our, it's, it's, we need the gospel to free our conscience. Paul is advocating freedom and not restriction on a gray matter here. And we need to experience the freedom of the gospel. So he's saying, don't get into that uncomfortable situation. An unbeliever invites you over, like be a human being. You have far more in common with this person. You're created in the image of God. You both need to eat dinner. Uh, Praise God, he's invited you over. Great. So go to their house. And when they sit down, you know, show some courtesy, show some manners. Don't get awkward. Like, uh, um, can I, can I ask about what we're eating? Well, yeah, sure. Where, where did you get the meat? Uh, the only place that you can buy meat in town, the one Corinthian meat market. (laughs) That's right. Oh, uh, did you ask the butcher about like the source of the meat? Uh, yeah, it came from like a lamb. 
It's a lamb chop. No, no. Did you ask him, was there like any, well, like before he bought, like, was there some religious, well, what I'm trying to ask is, was this kind of in a religious temple? Just eat the meat. He's saying, don't be so awkward that your, that your conscience is like, is, is unhelpful that it's a, it's, this guy is serving you. Meat was a delicacy. He has laid out money to have you over. It's not a sin to eat the meat. You don't have to have some uh, sort of legalistic standard that you're living by that God doesn't hold you to, that the gospel frees you from, and the unbeliever has no idea what you're talking about. You don't have to do that. It's a call to enjoy the freedom of God, especially when we're reaching out to people that don't know, don't know Christ. Now, the next verse is very interesting. And uh, I wrestled with kind of understanding this. Maybe you did too. One thing that's helpful is the old RSV takes the next verse, verse 28, and this is not a literal translation. This is an interpretation. They put it in parentheses. So the way that many scholars read this is this way. Um, you know, eat whatever, verse 27, eat whatever's before you without any raising any question on the ground of conscience. Parentheses. Now, let me finish my thought. Go, go to uh, uh, verse 29. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's? Okay? Doesn't matter what someone else thinks about, is this okay? I'm free to do it so I can eat with an unbeliever and do it. Okay? I'm free to do that. That's the line of thought. But there's this parentheses in between, this kind of nested thought here. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Okay, serve your neighbor for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his end of parenthesis. So there's this thought in here. What about if this would bother someone, someone's conscience? No unbeliever is going to be struggling. The unbeliever who served it to you eats down at the pagan temple, buys all their meat at the meat market. So that person isn't like, oh, my conscience is affected if you eat this. He's introducing the weaker brother. So what could he, I suppose one situation where they could blend together is you're at the unbeliever's house. You're not asking awkward questions, but as the plate comes around, you've got a new Christian with you that you're caring for and leading. And they say, Hey, that was offered to a demon. I can't eat that. We can't eat that. This will be displeasing the Lord. Okay. This isn't a time to preach all chapters eight through 10. Explain this. Then, then skip. Say, you know what? I think I'm going to pass. Just could you pass the salad for the sake of your weak Christian friend? Because what they're going to do is then they're going to eat. If you do your Liberty is going to lead, which is biblical is going to lead them to eat. And Paul, Paul says in chapter eight, they're going to be sinning against their conscience. So that's one way the two could go together. One thing that's clear is that the unbeliever is not wrestling with conscience. It's the believer. So even as we are relating with people that don't know Christ, we're all always have our, a Christian friend in mind who might be a new believer or have a different point of view. We're always seeking it at the same to serve and love them and also to represent the grace of God to an unbeliever. So he's telling us both here in the passage. Um, so it could be that the, un, the weaker believer is present during this interchange. It doesn't tell us the interchange, but it does say you're free to eat with an unbeliever, but if someone's conscience thinks it's a sin, then pass for their benefit. The only way, I, one way I see those going together is maybe you've got a friend there with you and uh, you, you uh, could serve them. But the primary idea here is seek the good of your neighbor. Your lost neighbor, seek the good of your neighbor. Don't introduce a bunch of stuff that's going to be confusing to them. Receive their hospitality. Your Christian neighbor who has a weaker conscience, serve them. And verse 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you pass, whether you have seconds, either way. Do it in a way that will reflect the character of God. That's the big picture. I just gave you, Paul, saying this one instance that y'all are troubled with in Corinth. I gave you one instance of how that works. You seek your neighbor's good. Now, the next section is, is, is interesting because it's not only seek your neighbor's good, but this is important. Seek your neighbor's ultimate good is how I would want to say it, but we could say it. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews. He's already talked about that. When I'm with a Jew, I relate in a way that they can relate. I'm not two-faced, but I'm loving. When I'm with a non-Jew, I relate in a way they can relate. So Paul would feel free to eat pork. If he's hanging out with Jewish people trying to tell them about Jesus, he's not serving them pork. If he has someone from Corinthian, uh, from the Corinth, a pagan over, great, we'll serve them pork. So he just relates to people in a loving way. I've become all things to all people, he said. 
chapter nine. I become all things to all people. He's just relating. So don't offend Jews. Don't offend Greeks. And by the way, don't offend church folk either or to the church of God, verse 32. So love everybody. And this takes a, you can't be, I can't be rigid and do this. I can't be overly rigid. There has to be sort of a freedom of grace, a, a cultural nimbleness, flexibility, a heart motivated by a heart of love for others, that I'm not acting fake in different crowds. That's not what he means, but that I'm loving in every situation I walk in and how can I reflect the glory of God and how can I seek their good? With those questions, now how do I relate to this Jewish man? How do I relate to this Greek unbeliever? How do I relate to this Christian who has some different views that I do on gray matters where we could take a different point of view? How do I help them? It's just loving, it's, it's, it's living life not focused on me. It's focusing on the glory of God and the benefit of others. And that's why Christianity is so difficult because I don't think about me. Well, here's what they think. You know, that's, they could be just, what do I want to do? What am I free? I'm free to do the, God's not, a, God's not bothered if I do this. So into the discussion. Oh no, because is it helping? Is it building up? Is it reflecting Christ to others? All of these kinds of things. It just means that we're dependent and we need the Holy Spirit to help us. And we need the love of Christ to drive us. And we need the glory of God to be our ultimate Goal. So seek your neighbor's ultimate good. Don't do any of those, don't offend any of those people. Verse 33, I try to please everyone in everything I do. That's not fear of man. That's not living enslaved to people pleasing. Paul's the freest guy on the planet. He's not enslaved to people pleasing, but he's saying, when I am with other people, I'm saying, what would be a blessing to them? What would be pleasing to them? I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, catch this, that they may be saved. The ultimate good is that somebody meets Jesus. And so whatever I'm doing, however I'm living, the glory of God, the love of others, but it's the love of others so they may meet this same Jesus and experience him. That's what it's about. And so let's go back to the dinner party case study. He does, why does he not want you to ask a bunch of questions and be weird about the source of the meat and have a 10 minute conversation about all these things before you can take a bite? Why? Because that doesn't lead that man to Jesus. That lady is not led to Jesus when I'm bringing more rules than God has and I'm representing all of these rules to him. What does it say to him? Oh, being a Christian must have, must have to do, can we have lamb chops or not? Oh, that. I, that doesn't make any sense to me. What do you see? It, it's not, it, it, I want to be all things to all people. So I want to work for their advantage that they may be saved. I'm introducing a barrier to them knowing Jesus. He already said you can eat the meat. Jesus isn't sorry. So I'm introducing a barrier. And this is so important because people assume that don't know Christ, that being a Christian is keeping a certain set of rules. It's probably the rules that they saw their grandma do, or that they were in a church for a while. They saw the church do it, that they perceive their coworkers to do. And so a lot of people think the primary issue of being a Christian is moral behavior or is you got to do some kind of religious ritual. They're already in our culture for sure. I'm not talking Corinth, but in our culture for sure, they think being a Christian is you vote for this party. And if they're more conservative in orientation, then being a Christian means, or if the, 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 if the person they know is a Christian, then they think, okay, being Christian, that means you got to vote Republican, but wow, I don't want to vote Republican. Or if the person they know who's a Christian is more progressive in their social values, then they go, oh, okay, being Christian means you've got to have a burden for those issues and you got to vote Democrat, but I really don't want to vote Democrat. And we just introduce something to them that has nothing to do with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and being regenerated. God is not regenerating merely people that are Democrat or Republican. He's regenerating sinners, and both of those parties are filled with them, including you and me and whatever you're, or independents. Don't say I'm an independent and I, I sneaked out on that one. No, all of us, whoever you are, right? So that's introducing something that's unhelpful. Come to my house. Well, like, who, who did you vote for? It'd be like that. What, what do you mean, who do I vote? We want to come over. I voted. What, what does that mean? Same thing. Let me tell you an illustration from my own life. This is from years ago. We planted a church in San Diego, and the church was about a year, year old. This is a 21-year-old illustration, but this is how vivid it is to me. I can take you to where I was sitting and the look on the lady's face. So we had this couple. They, were, they started coming to the church, and we didn't know if they were Christians. 
and pro- and they weren't, but at some point they became Christians. And it wasn't really clear when did they actually become a Christian. So she was like brand new born again or about to be born again. I don't know. But so she, we invite them over. They've been coming on Sunday mornings. We're trying to reach out to them, serve them a meal, just trying to love them. And here's an important detail. At that point, we had one kid in school, I think, or early elementary, and we had made, there's many options, but we had made the free choice. Uh, The option we picked for her at that point was to homeschool her. So she was in home education. This family knew about this. So they're coming over and we're talking and she says, um, she says something about becoming a Christian. She says, now if I become a Christian, uh, when do I have to start homeschooling? <laughs> I was like, um, like never, you know, uh, w- w- you know, she knew we did that. I wasn't bragging about it. Didn't have a bumper sticker. Wasn't, ta- wasn't, hi- wasn't hiding it. Wasn't embarrassed. Wasn't brag. Wasn't, I didn't even think about it. When do I have to start homeschooling? I was so discouraged by that question because it meant maybe it was all on her, but it could have meant that something about my life and Ginger's life indicated that something that is a total option. First of all, I want to say plenty of people that don't know Jesus, don't love Jesus, hate Jesus homeschool. Plenty of people that love Jesus are in public school. Plenty of people that love Jesus are in private school. Plenty of people that this is, a, this is not the issue of faith in Christ. But there was something that we can all make different choices. And we made different choices along the way uh, with a couple of our kids. We did some different things. So whatever your choices are on education, that, that, if someone looks at that and says, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian, that they, then we're leading with the practice and, and that we're communicating. That's what it means. And I was so discouraged. I thought, did we say something? If we, I've never mentioned it in the in sermon. I, I've never even used this as an illustration. I've never used an illustration here until I thought about it. Uh, it this kind of illustration. So I would say, what, what did we do something? Oh, no, 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 that's not, no. And people have an idea that we can introduce. Oh yeah. Oh, do I have to join that political party? Oh, I'd like to be a Christian, but would I, I'm not an alcoholic or anything, but could I never drink again? Well, I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I mean, you couldn't go to a wedding with Jesus if that was your posture. So what what is, do, do I have to do that? Do I have to have this lifestyle? Do I have to work this exact kind of job? Well, if you're in the mafia, yeah, you need to quit to follow Jesus, but most every job in the room is gonna be okay. Do I have to do this job? Do I have to live? Do I have to drive that kind of car? We get too expensive or too cheap? Or we can introduce all these kinds of categories that may be choices that we have made, and they may be fine to be pleasing to the Lord. I trust our choice was pleasing to the Lord. I trust your choice if it's different is pleasing to the Lord. But it wasn't that. That wasn't the issue. And so Paul says, I'm, I do all of this so that people will be saved. I'm not seeking my own advantage so that people will be saved. So when the scripture doesn't tell us what we have to do in a situation, it does tell us why we have to. It does tell us the why. The why is the glory of God. The why is the good of others. And that dictates our practice. Paul closes the section by saying this, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What's he saying? Everything I'm telling you is what Jesus did. Jesus never sought his own good. Jesus never advantaged himself, but he disadvantaged himself. He suffered so that many might be saved. Jesus, the son of God, didn't come to seek his own advantage. Jesus, the son of God, didn't come uh, for for selfish reasons. He came for us. He lived a perfect life. He laid down his life and voluntarily died on a cross. And while he died, he was taking on the judgment for our sins. God judged Jesus for our sins. So Jesus laid down his life. Jesus freely and voluntarily gave himself, sacrificed himself, and and laid down his own freedoms for the eternal good of his neighbor. Jesus lived this text. That's why Paul says, this is what we're all called to do. And I learned this from Jesus. Jesus did this for me. 
The power to live this out is first of all coming and saying, this is what he did for me. The only reason I am free, the only reason I can love someone else, the only reason that I can make choices to advantage someone else is because Jesus made the choice to lay down his life so that my dead soul could come to life, so that my rebellious heart could be one to him, so that I could receive a new life and a love for him and a new affection for him. Jesus is the embodiment of this text. He did it for us. And that's why the last word, follow me as I am of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. This is what he did for us. It is his substitute, his work for us that we start with. And then we can start talking about following his example. But we start first of all with he laid down his freedoms. Have you ever thought about that? He was free. Jesus could have resisted arrest in the garden. He was God. Jesus could have come down, Jesus could have called down destruction on the false court that found him guilty. Jesus could have come down off the cross and judged everyone who was opposed to him instantaneously. But not all things are beneficial to save people. And so he gave his life that we might know him. Jesus laid down his freedom for our good. And if you've not received him, this is the start for you. If you've never believed in Jesus, the start for you is not go out and start loving people. The start for you is to, to be loved. The start for you is to re- receive the love of Jesus who gave his life for you, to receive his forgiveness. If you've never turned and trusted him, if you've never received his love, you may have seen Christians that had goofy stuff about their life, like mine, like other people in this room. And what you need to hear is it's not the goofy stuff of their life that you've got to imitate to be a Christian. What you have to do is recognize you're a sinner before a holy God, that you are selfish, that you are proud, that you have not loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And you are, you're going to be judged by God and are being judged by God for that. But God wants to forgive you in Christ. God will forgive you because of what he did in Jesus. If you turn from your sin and put your eyes on Christ and say, I'm turning from my sin, I'm repenting, I'm believing in you alone as my savior. If you will do that, you will receive new life. And the scripture will tell you like today, how to live your life from there on out. But you don't straighten your life up to be accepted by God. You say, my life is not straightened up and I'm accepted through what Christ did for me. And he'll help me figure out my ethical choices down the road as I'm in line with his scriptures. I'm turning, I'm leaving my sin and turning to him. He will help me on that road through the scripture. Now, if you're, so if you're not a believer, believe today, you can just tell Christ, I, I want you in my life. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to believe, and he will accept you. He, he will never cast you out. The scripture says anybody who comes to him, he will receive. But if I'm a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, I want to give a couple closing thoughts about how you can carry this passage into your week. How can you carry these truths in your week? How is God speaking to you? Well, here's the first idea we talked about. Seek the good of others by helping them or by building them up. Now, here's where I think we start on this. We start with prayer because that is not our natural, for many of us, that's not our natural reflex. That's not my natural impulse. My natural impulse is to say, is this a sin or not? And sadly, even if I know it's a sin, I'm going to sin. I'm going to cross that line. Sometimes I have to repent and ask the Lord's forgiveness. But if, I, if it's not a sin, if I say, can I do this? Yes, I can. It's not a sin. I want the impulse to not stop there and say, well, it's not forbidden, so go for it. I want the impulse to say, but does this help someone else? Does this benefit someone else? Because that's what Paul says we, uh, from the Lord that we're supposed to do here. So start with praying, Lord, develop this impulse in me. Develop the impulse that I will ask a second question about how to help someone. Lord, develop this reflex. So reflexively, the Holy Spirit is leading me to say, not only am I free, but what benefits others? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a way we can start to ask the Lord for that. Um, there's a thousand applications of this. So I'm not going to go lamb at an unbeliever's house or whatever the, whatever the sacrificial animal is. Here's where, there's a thousand, thousand applications uh, of, of how do we take the soaring truth uh, to the sparrow. But here's the one I want to use today. Social media. Many of us are on social media. Many of us participate in social media. Some of us don't. So please apply this. Don't, don't think that sermon is for someone else. You make an application for yourself. But social media. There are many things on Facebook, 
Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Those are probably the big ones. LinkedIn. I mean, maybe there's others that are big, but those are the big ones. So when, when we go to post something there, when we go to, that's communication. We go to communicate with people. The, the question, according to this passage, it should be with how can I use this medium if I'm on it at all? If I'm on social media at all, how can I use this medium to glorify the Lord, to reflect his character? Oh man, that, that seems like so narrow. Paul talks about lamb chops at dinner. That's no more narrow. This, this, that's way bigger picture than one meal, I would say. So uh, if, if I'm on it at all, how can I use this as a platform to glorify the Lord? Which doesn't mean everything has to be a scripture. I mean, it's all of life. It, it's not just narrow, but, but how can I, at least if someone looked at my social media timeline over a month, would they know I'm a Christian? Would they see something of the character of God there? That, that's the first thing. Uh, and I'm a participant. I'm on social media, so I'm not talking to all y'all people and <laughs> excuse myself. But then the question is, if I put this in a tweet, is it sinful? No, hit send. I got to ask more than that. If I put this picture of me and my friend on Instagram, of course that's not sinful, send. Or are there any other questions I should ask? I believe the scripture would say there are other questions we should ask. Does it glorify the Lord? But not, can I do it? But is it helpful and will it build up? I'm not being legalistic here. We have freedom in Christ to use that freedom for the benefit of others. So how do we take our freedom and benefit other people with it? I mean, there are times when I want to hit send. I, mean, there's, I can't even tell you how many times I've had something thumbed out and I'm ready to hit send. And then maybe it's just something I'll think, wow, that's kind of snarky. You know, I just don't know. Is that going to really help people or is that going to really, man, that's a zinger. I, I'm, I'm, I'm bad. I, I think, I think, oh man, if I said this, that'd be a real zinger out, you know, something like that out there. And, oh, I get them. Like I'm still in seventh grade having to make a pop off. Con- I'm still that guy. I'm still a seventh grader that wants to pop off and get a laugh from the class or something like that. You know? So if I say this, wow. So maybe the statement in itself is not a raw sin. It's not like I was cursing God. It's not like it was, it was using sexually provocative language. It's not like I was lying. But did, is that going to hinder someone? It's just a question to ask. Picture with me and my friend. It's okay. Ladies, we went out. Here I am with my BFF. I don't even know if people use that anymore. I, I never used it, so I don't know. But here I am with my hashtag BFF, friends for life, hashtag most special person in my whole life. Is that a sin? No. Is it helpful to my next two, three, or four, or five ladies' friends who weren't invited out when we went out that night? And are they instantly now comparing where they stand with me? Is it a sin? No. Am I responsible for someone else's comparison problem? No, they will answer to God if they're comparing and they're depressed or they're arrogant about it or they they will answer to God for that. That's not the question. The question is, am I benefiting other people? Am I a stumbling block? Am I helpful? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Did I say you can never have a friend picture and say, that's not what I said. I just said, it'd be helpful to ask, is that helpful? It'd be helpful to ask, does that build up? It'd be helpful to, now in my heart, if I'm saying, oh, I want to put this out there so they'll see, I'm not hanging out with them anymore. That's sinful. That's not lawful. That's, that's subtweeting. I don't know what the title is on Facebook, but that's getting it someone else by not mentioning. No, that's sinful. But is it okay? I do my, my story from, from Snapchat or what happened in my day or something like that. Am I doing it in a way that would edify, that would build up? Or will I just be stirring stuff up out there? The reason I'm using application is because I saw some really bad stuff in social media this week where people, Christians, were just going at it, gloves off. And I was like, wow. I mean, I could do the same thing. But I thought, this is an application This is an application. Can I be a source of great encouragement to people in what I speak digitally and what I speak personally? Everything that I'm free to say maybe doesn't need to be said. That's why I need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. That's a good principle. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Especially when I think my thought will really, yeah, yeah. It's challenging, man. It's challenging to me. And we live in a world where this is a primary, for some people, the primary way of relationships. We have to, we have to address digital because it's the primary way that many of us relate with people during the day. So is it lawful? May not be sinful. 
There's so many things I want to say. It's not sinful to say that about that political thing, but uh, like, are my Christian friends going to be helpful to them, be built up? Are they going to be served? My unbelieving friend, is he going to say, wow, I want to follow Jesus because you said that? Or are they going to be saying, yep, that's what I thought Christians were like. No, thanks. Guy invites me to his church. I'm not coming because I know what he's like. I saw his social media life. I saw his pictures. I saw his words. That really applies to this passage. Here's the last application we're done. Seeking to please others so that they may be saved. So he's, I'm seeking to serve, seeking to help others so that they may be saved. The, sitting in the unbeliever's house for dinner, that's the illustration he uses. But how can I reflect what Jesus has done for people in the way I relate? How can I relate to other people so that they see the Lord uh, and they experience the Lord, so that they see Christ's love for them? One little quick thought that I feel convicted of about this passage is that he said elsewhere in chapter nine, I feel I'm going to be all things to all men. Here he says, do it for their good, build up your neighbor, help your neighbor. What's he talking about? Be patient, be loving, be humble, be kind. But the goal is not that you be a nice Christian lady and a nice Christian dude. The goal is not that because I did this, I went to his house, didn't ask questions. I was friendly. At the end of the day, he's, that's a friendly person. That's probably a good thing to do on the first visit. But if I have an unbelieving coworker, an unbelieving neighbor that I'm building a relationship with, and I'm doing all of these things that he talks about here, at the end of the day, if the goal is that they like me, then I have missed the point. Because he says, we do this for the glory of God, for the good of others, so that many may be saved. The challenge is, am I ever getting beyond? I'm building a relationship. We got to start there, but I'm building a relationship. I'm loving. I'm thinking of others. Is it helpful? Is it beneficial to the unbeliever, which he talks about here in that process? Am I ever getting to the place of explanation of why, how God has changed my life, why I want to love other people, why I fail at it, but why I want to love do, am I ever crossing the line to go next level and step out for Christ at some point? The problem is we don't want to just be missional in the sense that we're relatable and we are making friends with unbelievers. At some point, not the first conversation typically, but at some point it needs to cross over. And Paul's motivation is the reason I do all of this is so that God will be glorified because God wants to save many people to begin to worship him so that he's glorified in all the earth by more and more people naming his name and following him, not by just going, my coworker's a really nice guy. It's way more than that. It is, it is seeking to glorify him. So am I seeking to serve others by the grace of God as he has served me? That's the first question in doing things that are helpful and beneficial. And the second one is, am I seeking to serve others so that they may be saved? Do we have that end in view? So that in our mind, we're praying, we're asking for an opportunity. We're not trying to be rude and obnoxious in the relationship, but we're trying to be loving and maybe have, it may be a hard conversation, but we're trying to do that for the glory of God. And it is all by his grace. Jesus has come to us. Jesus has sought our good by laying down his life. And now he empowers us to seek the glory of God as we relate to other people. And the beauty of this is, no, I haven't always done things that are helpful, but because Jesus gave his life for me, I can be forgiven and I can receive power to change. And I haven't always reached out to people hoping and and, and seeking to get the gospel to them so that they can be saved. I haven't always, I've been fearful. I've been selfish. Yes, but I can come to the Jesus who did that for me, laid down his life and I can be forgiven and I can be empowered for change because of Jesus laying down his life and coming for us and rescuing us and saving us. We can be forgiven where we fail and we can receive power to seek the good of others for the glory of God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.